1: welcome to the the podcast that gives new life to old books we are here today for our christmas episode in the london review bookshop uh, in london a place which i noted on TripAdvisor no less as an essential part of the capital's cultural life well we shall see Um, i'm
2: (laughs) i'm john mitchinson the publisher of unbound the platform where readers crowdfund the books they really want to read i'm andy miller author of the year of reading dangerously and joining us today are Hilary Sperling, one of this country's most respected biographers and literary editors. Her books have won multiple awards, including the 2005 Whitbread Book of the Year for Matisse the Master, the second volume of her Life of the Artist. She is also the official biographer, as luck would have it, <laughs> of the novelist Anthony Pohl. What a coincidence. <laughs> An amazing coincidence. <laughs> And her book, Anthony Pohl, Dancing to the Music of Time, was published to universal acclaim last year. Hillary is also the author of Invitation to the Dance, an invaluable handbook for anyone preparing a podcast on the dance (laughs) and the music of time. (laughs) And also for readers of the 12-volume novel sequence that the author himself described this book as, quote, a master key. Delighted to be joined by Philip Hensher, the novelist and book reviewer. Philip's novel The Northern Clemency was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize in 2008 and Scenes from Early Life won the Ondarci Prize in 2013. Earlier this year, Penguin released The Penguin Book of the Contemporary British Short Story, edited by Philip, and Fourth Estate released his latest novel, The Friendly Ones, which was described in The Times as, the book you should give someone who thinks they don't like novels. (laughs) (laughs) And we are here to discuss, of course, the famous unfinished book, Profiles in String, by the novelist ex-trap, <laughs> except
1: but seriously we're very very pleased to have hillary and, and philip here to talk about uh, books do furnish a room which is the 10th volume in the magnificent roman fleuve by anthony pole a dance to the music of time this book the 10th book was published in 1971 by william heinemann
2: how many people here have read in its entirety, A Dance to the Music of Time. Wow. Everyone, that is amazing. <laughs> amazing. And how this many... Might, this might be, I mean,
1: that might be a, we, might, we, could, we should have got the Guinness Book of World Records down <laughs> for a... Um...
2: <laughs> and how many people here, raise your hand if you have read The Dance to the Music of Time this year following a foolish suggestion by me on that list? Oh, my goodness. There you
3: go.
2: That's amazing. Is someone called Rye Limit here Rye Limit at the back. When did you finish A Dance to the Music of Time? 11 o'clock last night. 11 o'clock last night. Good, huh? Well done, Ryan Limit. And also, we're joined by uh, three chaps. Could you stand up, please? John, Rob and Adrian. Give them a round of applause now. (laughs) So, John, Rob and Adrian... I am, this is so impressive. Not only did they follow our suggestion of reading the donks in monthly instalments this year, but they also met intermittently to discuss it at the Ritz, <laughs> at the pub in Fitzrovia, and this afternoon at the Wallace Collection. <laughs> they met this afternoon... That is extraordinary. ..under Poussaint's The Dance... I'd like to know, did they go to Venice for the 11th? John Mitchison, you read it this year. So before I turn to our guests, did you enjoy it?
1: I loved it. In fact, I found it... What I discovered was... Philip, rather interesting, just said to me, did you not find it difficult to... You know, it's rather slow, which is true, to do it a a book a month. But did you not lose your way? And the answer is yes, (laughs) frequently. But, of course, I had close by me just when I needed... I mean it's it's not all I don't, I don't think you have to have uh, Hillary's brilliant um, invitation to dance near, but it it really helps. but what I found was it it was it was because i'm I'm a publisher obviously I'm reading a lot of stuff all the time and as you know there's a lot of reading for the podcast. I found it was the book I went to in the dark cold watches of the night for comfort. I found it immeasurably kind of reassuring and comforting as a book i don't I don't quite know why because it's it's funny, but it's also. I don't know, something about ageing as well, getting older and reflecting on one's life. It, it, you know, that in the strange way that you, reading a novel becomes part of your own kind of autobiography uh, in the same way. So I am very sad to have let it go, and I will now read the rest of Paul's fiction, which we might also talk about a little.
2: Philip, can you remember where you were, who you were, <laughs> when you first read... Um, *A Don't the Music of Time. Well, um,
3: I, I grew up in, in Sheffield and I, I went to a comprehensive school there and I think that one of the things that um, in that sort of background encourages you into is um, exploring all sorts of existences that aren't your own, really. And also, I was terrifically pretentious.
0: <laughs> um,
3: <laughs> um, I, I I remember being hauled up with mockery in the press quite recently for remarking that uh, in my, my sixth form we used to talk about uh, things like the Sitwells all day long and no one believed it genuinely <laughs> and I think it's very underestimated how aesthetics emerge from these kind of backgrounds and so I read Proust when I was 16 you know the, the old um, Scott Moncrief yeah, yeah. editions you know, that I borrowed from the, the City Library it was actually murder <laughs> trying to get the first three volumes from Sheffield City Libraries, because everybody was constantly taking them out. Oh, if you got past <laughs> volume three, you were all right.
2: <laughs>
3: I read that and I thought, okay, that's I've done that. I've done I've done Proust. I've got Proust under my belt. What's next? You know, and this is the thing about public libraries. If you go along the shelves of public libraries, there are those those kind of shelves that have kind of 12-volume novels, and you think, oh, I'll have a bit of that, and then uh, uh, and I saw Anthony Pearl. I had a go at um, somebody called Maso de la Roche as well, who sort of disappeared, <laughs> pure, rather um, justifiably. But then there was Future Anthony Pearl. Yeah. <laughs> there was, there was and so I read Anthony Pearl when I was 16. and I, I would say that bits of it meant more to me than, yeah. than other bits. The stretches that I loved immediately... And have gone on loving are the fourth to sixth volumes, the real kind of party going volumes. Yeah. Um, the the volumes that I i pushed had to push through were the wartime volumes. It's only quite recently that I've liked those. But um, whenever I've gone back to it, I've always found something different to to like about it. And in the kind of periods between reading them, I've often found myself thinking, I wonder what. Pamela
2: Flitton loved you now. <laughs> oh, no, no good. No good yes. <laughs> um, Hilary, you of course knew Anthony <clears throat> Pearl for many years and he commissioned you to write his biography, did he not? Write?
4: Well, it was kind of agreed between us, but I think that Anthony Pearl, of whom I had become a friend having been a fan, and I'll explain to you how that happened uh, uh, later, um, that I was a very useful to him because it meant that all the other people who wanted to write his biography, who, who were quite a few, quite a lot of people wrote to him about that, he could just say, no, sorry, I've got an official biographer, and he did that for years. <laughs> and it used to drive me mad. And once one of them, by this time I had by then become a biographer, and a fellow biographer wrote me a very formal letter saying... Uh, You know, I have it in mind, it has been suggested to me, might write a biography of Anthony Powell. But of course, I wonder how you would feel about that. And I thought, bloody hell, I am being used as a spoiler. I, in those days, absolutely didn't. It was the last thing I wanted to do, writer. And it is very, very, very difficult, I can assure you, to write a biography of a person that you're fond of. I've, I've done it twice, and both times it was... It really, I was going to say, it nearly killed me. Well, that's a silly thing to say. It's the other person,
2: Sonia Orwell. Yes.
4: Yeah. Yeah. And I only wrote her life because three, two, three, four, possibly five biographies of Orwell had trashed her and they were getting worse and worse and they were making up things. And all of Sonia's friends, I was Sonia's friend quite independently, all of Sonia's friends wrote to the newspaper, you know, the Times, I don't think the the literary re- London re- was going then, but, you know, to every literary paper and to all the main national papers, didn't make a blind bit of difference. And finally, I was sitting, happened to be sitting at some literary dinner, I suppose, next door to uh, Geoffrey Myers, who had written one of these, yes. in fact, the worst of all these yes. biographies of George Orwell. He, he, he writes a book in six months. Well, I take my hat off to him for that. That... <laughs> but they do, it does slightly show. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, no will hear this. So he he just capped all the, and this is why they all did it, I think, because D'Orwell's life was extremely well documented by the first biography, Bernard Crick, yeah. who is an economist and hasn't got a biographical bone in his body, but he is a good researcher and an academic, so he did do the legwork, and there it all was. So all the other ones, I mean, this is... No doubt, I'm libeling, I don't think
2: I am.
4: They had had all their research done for them. So then they just took a slightly different turn. And that was generally about Sonia. So Eileen Orwell, the first Mrs. Orwell, was sainted by biography, biographer after biographer. And Sonia Orwell, the second Mrs. Orwell, was demonised. And in the end, it was just it was Geoffrey Myers of all people who said to me because we'd been getting on very well. He's a funny, very funny man, telling me stories and so forth. And I said, by the way, I do have something I'm going to have to say to you before we go. Oh, I know, he said, it's Sonia Orwell, isn't it? And I said, well, yes. You know, your life of Sonia Orwell was—I can't remember the word I use—but trash, twaddle, made up from start to finish. And he said, well, (laughs) so it was more or less. But he said, (laughs) why don't you write about her? And I I must, I mean, that is why I did in the end write a short book about Sonia. It was a very good suggestion because since then I wrote a very short book about her. Well, really, it was just that I wanted to, to scotch this, or at least say to all the people who put forward this view of her as someone who had exploited Orwell and squandered his money after his death, Okay, then bring forward some evidence. No one had been able, of course, to bring a scrap of evidence that this was true. So I, my book was a very short book and had very long footnotes. I footnoted everything, and I contradicted everything, or more or less everything that they said, and uh, that worked.
2: So before she go, hasn't
4: been slandered or or libelled since.
0: Before I we think.
2: go on to talking about poll, we have the great good fortune to have some recordings from nineteen seventy five. Desert Iron Discs, which I am going to get Anthony Pold himself to do the heavy lifting for me now, and he will describe to you, well, should we call it the dance or the music of time?
4: I call it the dance, but you can dance. call it what you like.
2: The dance. The dance. Well, I suppose
5: that it really begins when the, um, the narrator is about uh, about seven or eight and takes him on until he's about, um, well, in his late 60s. That is about the the spread of it. But the the first one came out in 1951, and the last one appeared in 1975, last year. Now, did you have a, a clear idea of just how many volumes this novel was going to take? No, I knew it was going to take a great many, but I didn't really know how many until... I really got within sight of the war and I knew that I would want to write at least three volumes about the war.
2: One of the things I think is remarkable about A Dance the Music of Time, rather like the four Rabbit novels by Updike, is that it's quite difficult to read them and feel he didn't know exactly where he was going from the very beginning, which is, of course, part of the artistry of it. In my view, Philip, what do you think? Is it... Does it hang... You've read it several times. Does it hang together or does it feel I think
3: that it it does hang together I mean it's it, I don't think it, it quite rivals the the kind of uh, overwhelming narrative arc in Proust but I do think it hangs together the the one thing that I would say <laughs> is that there's a slightly strange quality that comes over the narrative when the time he's narrating overlaps with the time when he was writing the the novel so, I mean, after, uh, after the 10th after the volume, there's a kind of um, strange kind of speeding up of, of the episodes. I think the 12th volume is, is magnificent, but it's got a very different quality, I think, to the, the others. Now, you can just regard that as a sort of coda to, to, to the whole thing. But um, for me, I think that the main body of the arc is in the first 10
4: Henry, what do you? Well, if we're going to play numbers, yeah. my favourite volume is Temporary Kings, probably, uh, which yeah, is uh, volume. I think 11. that, I think that it, might it be mine. It seems to yes. yes, it's very very rich. Not the one very, we're talking very about. <laughs> ah, but <laughs> I have reread this yeah. uh, for tonight, and I must say I'm very very touched by books to furnish a run. It's uh, well, I don't know if we're meant to start talking about this particular yeah. book. We should be talking in general, but. It touches me very strongly. It's a book in which he uh, picks things up after the war. Britain was picking things up after the war. Life was restarting, quite a lot about that. That was the period in which I was beginning my life, so it's not really to do with that. But when I came to London, I uh, worked first as a waitress in the Tottencourt Road, three pounds a week. And then I moved to The Spectator for not much more and became <laughs> its arts editor. And then it's up to its literary editor. And this book came out when I was still working at The Spectator. And so it, it is about, well, it's about, as far as it has a specific subject, it is the publishing world. And it's specifically, it's a lot, lot, quite a lot of it is set in a magazine called Fission, which is, as it were, a latter-day London Review, I would say. Fission, yes. We were were saying earlier, weren't we, it's
2: it's imaginary Bloomsbury tonight in the heart of actual Bloomsbury. Mm.
4: (laughs) And so when I read this book, it so much retrod the world that I'd been living in. And you know how when when you become an adult, and I moved to London when I became an adult, that part of your life, you feel very intensely, much more so than I would probably feel anything now, so, books do furnish a room which was writing about that period. I had just actually met Anthony Pearl uh, in a scene setting, certainly not unlike the book. In fact, I think he'd contributed to this book. Well, yes, I think he did. <laughs> so, you see, this book has a particular significance for me because of that, because I knew, I knew the area he writes about, I knew the people. I didn't, of course, name McLaren Ross. We are talking about period even earlier than my 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 own but but the seedy streets he writes about i can't tell you how seedy this area was and a lot of you perhaps don't remember that but it was a very um grotty area indeed and that is the world that's re- that's conjured up in this book that and the and the uh, the staffage as it were the literary personnel the people who are gathered here tonight the people that frequent bookshops
0: we'll be back in just a minute elevate every morning with tommy john's second skin underwear Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Sec.
2: I'm going to ask you to read a little bit, but first of all, I just want to... I, I have the jacket that... We, we always read out the jacket, the blurb on Backlisted, and I have here the... Blurb from the front flap of the 1971 edition of <laughs> Book to Do, Furnish a Room, which I assume would have been written by Paul. Do you well, think so? Normally
4: it is, yes. Yeah. I mean, by an author,
2: yes. Here we go. Get ready, everybody. Hold on to your hats. The 10th volume of Anthony Pohl's great novel, The Music <laughs> of Time, Note, The Music of Time, begins the final trilogy of the sequence. The scene is London during the two or three years after the Second World War. The book's title is taken to some extent from the nickname of one of the characters, Books Do Furnish a Room Bagshaw, all purposes journalist and amateur of revolutionary theory, but the phrase also suggests an aspect of that rather bleak post-war period, London's literary world finding its feet again. For example, Nicholas Jenkins, the narrator, who has begun work on a biography of Robert Burson, 17th century author of The Anatomy of Melancholy, gets a job doing the books on a little magazine. That's Fission that you were referring to. This brings about contact with persons known and unknown, including that talented writer of the war generation, X-Trapnel, always (laughs) living on the edge of disaster. Widmerpool, he's a sort of panto boo there. (laughs) Widmerpool, now a Labour MP, abuts on these activities. (laughs) with his young and beautiful wife, the former Pamela Flitton, a troublemaker. <laughs> Books Do Furnish a Room throws vivid light on an important, neglected and sometimes slightly sinister period. What do you think?
4: Well, that's pretty much my, my experience of yeah. this area and of that book.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's good, isn't
1: it, John? yeah, I mean, it, you know, we love a good blow. The book is sort of structured around, as a number of the, the novels in the sequence are, Brilliant set pieces. The funeral of Eridge, the literary cocktail party, uh, the fishing cocktail party. I think the fabulous scene towards the end where Widmerpool um, uh, visits Trapnell and his wife, without giving too many spoilers away, Widmerpool's wife decides, takes a shine to Trapnell, and they go off together to live in his grotty, Latin down in Maida Vale. The book is sort of structured around these brilliant comic kind of set pieces, but it's, and, and through this all, you've got Nicholas Jenkins, who in a, I mean, we talk, maybe talk about Jenkins and Pohl and how interchangeable they are, observing and reflecting. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's very intoxicating way of telling stories. And I, I liked what you said before, Philip, about the, the later books. Kind of fast forwarding a little bit a lot of it is uses that brilliant technique of of referring to something that's happened that you don't know yet what, what has happened, and then on the, the story unfolds often through conversations with other people it's just as literary craftsmanship it's it's' it, I, beautifully constructed
4: it's like fireworks
1: yeah
2: like fireworks
4: yes, I think well to me it is i, I find mm. i haven't read any Pearl since I finished writing about him, which was two, three years ago now. So it, it was nice. It was very nice for me to rediscover that voice. And yes, the voice is um, slow, steady, deceptively so, of course. It is extremely funny. But a lot of what is so funny is going on between the lines. And at the same time, I find it as John said, quite intoxicating, and that's what I meant by its power, It's like pyrotechnics. It's just so dazzlingly, you know, you stand and you look at fireworks and you think this cannot be happening. Yeah, I cannot be seeing this. <laughs> this is just not possible. Well, I do get that feeling from Anthony. So, the technical side, I suppose.
1: Yeah, there are so many times when you think he's not going to get away with this. You can't bring yeah. you can't bring Widmapool into this <laughs> at this moment and expect that this is going to work. But he, the particular
3: aspect to the technique, i think is very is in a way it's um is against the the general tendency that we're told the 20th century novel takes which is more and more interiority more, yeah. and more dwelling on the, the passages of the mind and he doesn't do that very much of that we yeah. don't really hear a lot about nick jenkins's passages of thought what we get is a lot of very close analysis of what we do in everyday life we look at people's exteriors. We look at the way they carry themselves. We look at the way they behave and the way that they react and what they to say. each other and what they say. And um, it's, it's very much like <laughs> going through life. There's a wonderful scene that I absolutely adore when um, um, the ghastly Mrs. McClintick meets <laughs> Charles Stringer. And he's fascinated by the fact that he's dressed up as little Bo Peep. And the way they kind of, their surfaces bang up against each other, that everyone around them is just terrified of what is going to happen. We don't hear anything about what they really think at all. It's just what they are saying to each other about what the other one looks like. One's drunk, one's wearing a ridiculous dress, and that's enough.
4: And it makes you dizzy sometimes, doesn't it? Mm. Because it's so. And yet it's also so easy. At least I find they run down very smoothly those books. But when you know them, I do know them very well now, as you do. And therefore, I notice things I didn't certainly didn't notice before. And partly it's this. I mean, and now one of the things I mostly notice, and I'm, and of course I've become a writer myself in that interval, is this this dazzling firework pyrotechnical power of just going from one impossible place to another which you don't notice when you first read it because it runs so smoothly you know that is a very extraordinary friction i suppose you could call it i mean different things pulling in different
2: directions could you read us something i asked you to choose a passage before while you're looking for it i just want to quote extractor in Temporary King, <laughs> Jenkins remembers him saying, and you, you backlisted listeners will appreciate the truth of what extract says here, reading novels needs almost as much talent as writing them. <laughs> so,
4: I love that. Having yes. said that, Hillary, I agree.
2: would you read for us, please?
4: I find it very, very difficult choosing an extract from this book because <laughs> because it's, well, uh, what volume is it? Anyway, it's quite far on in the sequence. The people, everything relate so much to each other. So I've chosen a fairly self-contained little episode taking place at a Fission party. This is a party, a gathering not unlike this one, I would say, in a bookshop, a London bookshop, except that at this party people move about with their drinks instead of having to sit still and listen to, to, to various people. It's a world you'll all be very, very familiar with. I think that, that as I said, Fission is, as it were, the London Review of 50 years ago, or very similar organ and the other thing I should say is you must remember that the journalists in this episode they are the equivalent of I suppose TV celebrities of today. That's to say journalists in those days were not you know uh, clinging on the way journalists are today. They were very powerful people indeed and this is about a couple of very powerful journalists. The narrator is arriving at a party in this area and not unlike this building. It's actually a bookshop, he's, I mean, a, a publishing house he's going into, but they have a bookshop too. And the uh, bookshop firm is called Quiggin and Craggs. Uh, Quiggin and Craggs are both present. No one was about by the trade counter. The doors were now all open, furniture pushed back against the wall, typewriters in rubber covers standing on steel cabinets, a table covered with stacks of the first number of fission. In the farthest room stood another table on which glasses, but no bottles, were to be seen. We moved towards the drinks, where were also standing Bernard Schoenmaker and Nathaniel Sheldon. These characters have not appeared in the music of time before, and that's why I chose this extract. There's quite a lot of explanation now, makes it easier to follow, I hope. This immediately suggested an uncomfortable situation, as these two critics had played on different sides in a recent crop of letters about homosexuality in one of the weeklies. In any case, they were likely to be antipathetic to each other as representing opposite ends of their calling. Sheldon, an all-purpose journalist with a professional background, had probably never read a book for pleasure in his life. This didn't at all handicap his laying down the law in a reasonably lively manner. (laughs) And with brutal topicality in the literary column of a daily paper. He would have been equally happier, possibly happier, if that epithet could be used of him at all in almost any other journalistic activity. Schoenmaker represented literary criticism in a more eminent form. Indeed, one of his goals was to establish, finally, that the critic, not the author, was paramount. He tended to offer guarded encouragement, tempered with veiled threats, to young writers. There was a piece by him in Fission contrasting Rilke with Mayakovsky. Two long reviews dovetailed together into a fresh article. Schoenmaker's reviews, unlike Sheldon's, would one day be collected together and published in a volume itself to be reviewed, though not by Sheldon. I <laughs> was quite certain. Yet was it certain? Their present differences could become so polemical that Sheldon might think it worthwhile lampooning Schoenmaker in his column. If Sheldon did decide to attack him, Schoenmaker would have no way of getting his own back, however rude Sheldon might be. However, even offensive admission into Sheldon's column was recognition that Schoenmaker was worth abusing in the presence of a mass audience. (laughs) (laughs) That would to some extent spoil the pleasure for Sheldon, for Schoenmaker allay the pain. Publishers endlessly argued, question whether Sheldon or Schoenmaker sold any of the books they discussed. The majority view was that no sales could take place in consequence of Sheldon's notices because none of his readers read books. (laughs) (laughs) Schoenmaker's readers, on the other hand, read books, but his scraps of praise were so niggardly to the writers he scrutinized that he was held by some to be an equally ineffective medium. It was almost inconceivable for a writer to bring off the double event of being mentioned, far less praised, by both of them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> right. I think
0: that
4: brilliant. just about gets the world
2: oh, that wonderful. we're in. A... <laughs> the reason I chose, or I particularly wanted to talk about this volume, is because Paul is such a brilliant writer, even now as we read it now, about the world of books and bookshops and publishing. right? I, 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 there's so many things that made me giggle or laugh out loud in this book. He's also brilliant at inventing titles of yeah. fictional books. <laughs> if I ask each of you to nominate a, your favourite fictional title by Paul... Oh.
3: Dogs Have No Uncles. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well,
3: I
4: think Camel Ride to the Tomb. Yeah, <laughs> by Extrapnel.
2: Camel <laughs> Ride to St John. Ada
1: Lentwoodine's I Stopped at the Chemist. <laughs> <laughs> or... Or if I'm going to get into... Later
2: later film, as. Sally Goes Shopping. (laughs) Sally Goes Shopping. (laughs) May I give you my favourite? My favourite is the left... It actually has two titles. It's submitted to Quiggin and Cracks, A left-wing novel with the title The Pistons of Our Locomotives (laughs) (laughs) Sing the Songs of Our Workers. (laughs) 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 Which, after a quick editorial turn, is subsequently published as Engine Melody. (laughs) (laughs) But <laughs> well, I, I think the greatest
3: fictional title in all of Pell isn't In the of Time. And I think it's, it will speak to everybody who's ever worked in a publisher. And it's uh, in what's become of wearing. And one day, the hero comes into work to find that one of his author, authors has submitted a manuscript which is 30,000 words short and entitled, Than Whom,
2: What Other? <laughs> Philip, you mentioned that you had read both Proust and Pohl in the same year. And yeah, we have a, we have a clip here <laughs> of yes. Pohl. We have a clip of Pohl. The comparison is put to Pohl, and this is what he says about it. And I want then, Hilary, if you would respond to what Anthony Pohl says, that would be great.
5: You called the work The Music of Time, Now, there's an echo of of Proust in that title, although neither your intention nor your style owes anything to Proust. Yes, well, I would quite agree about that. It it is simply a chance that there is this picture by Poussin, which is called A Dance to the Music of Time, which did seem to me to to cover very much what I was going to write about. And it shows the seasons dancing to time, who is staying um, while they dance. And it was really purely a chance, which I never thought about at all, um, that that the title resembled Proust in any way. Now, in that vast work, there are hundreds of characters. Do you think, visually, do you know what all the characters look like? Well, yes, I think I do, really. I think I do see them visually. And I always remember my old friend Constant Lambert saying he always liked characters to be described. He liked saying um, he is a middle-aged man with a chestnut moustache. He then (laughs) felt that he knew what the... um, character looked like?
2: Hilary, that's rather disingenuous. (laughs) The, The total coincidence of it being like Proust. It is partially inspired by Proust, isn't it?
4: I'm not sure. I think he's been dogged as a novelist. He was dogged all his life by comparisons of Proust, especially sneering ones. You know, they've got... Proust, and he thinks some people think he's the English Proust. So, of course, it made him. It made him. He loved Proust certainly, and re- and indeed read the whole of Proust before he began to read. I think it was a preliminary, a training session, as it were. I think they're as unlike as the French are unlike us. I, I mean, there isn't very much in common. There was a, well,
1: long. <laughs> it's not they're really. long. Yeah, they're I mean, in twelve volumes.
4: Yeah, yeah. It more or less stops there. Pearl yeah. has a much, much broader social range in his novels. Yes, it's not generally attributed to him, but it's true. Mm. Proust writes about a very small yeah. section of um, aristocratic French life. And Pearl actually, in the old, what was it, News of the World slogan, all human light is there, in my opinion, if you're prepared to look for it and mm. accept that. You.
3: I think the other thing is that... Um Paul is much, much more interested in the different ways that people talk. I mean, his dialogue is very much more to the point. Proust's Proust's dialogue, I don't think, is his his selling point. I love Proust, but... um, um, I don't think that there's anything like those uh, snappy exercises. There's certainly
4: a woodhouse
3: yeah.
4: side strongly. Would, would, I mean,
1: Woodhouse loved Pole, didn't he?
4: Woodhouse loved Pole, but Pole wasn't influenced by Woodhouse because he didn't read him till much, much, much later. Pole so met someone see, yeah. who said, who was, had, had met Woodhouse in Paris and said he's going really crazy because he can't get, I think it was, he can't complete his set. He's got the whole of the Music of Time up to the point at which the writing I had reached at that stage. And he's got all the early novels except for what's become of Waring. So Pearl, being polite and also flattered, as authors tend to be if people are reading their book, um, packed up a copy and sent it to Paris. And then he got a marvellous letter from Woodhouse, really um, absolutely laying out, I think, the, the, the power and strength of the sequence and how excited he was by it. And he said, whenever I read your stuff... I think why didn't I think of that and it goes on like that you know he just he was bowled he, he,
1: over I didn't he say he right. looked at it and couldn't figure out how you got it how he no, got it to work I
4: just can't yeah. can't figure out how you do no. it.
3: I don't think there Which are many a, Woodhouse characters that would really go into I think the well,
4: what about Sheldon and Shernmaker, the couple I just? Uh, yes. I think that's a fairly Woodhousey next. Yes. Time. I, I agree with you. It's only one layer of what Pearl does.
3: I would. I the one Woodhouse character that I think would go in is Eucridge. <laughs> I think that Euchreidge would just plop straight into this volume.
1: but if Buster Fox is a this tiny bit yes. Woodhousey, isn't he? Philip, you You're know, gonna, you've, got,
3: you've got. You've got a, a okay, Dickie
2: Umfraville. Yeah.
3: Well, Dickie Umfraville, I absolutely adore, and I think that. It, Dicky Elphaville was one of those characters that a novelist writes and just develops an unnatural fondness for. Them. And Dickie Elphaville is <laughs> D- always, despite the evidence, is yeah. often kind of cropping up to say something totally scurrilous at the end of uh, at the end of chapters. <laughs> <And>, um, <laughs> That's true. I, I, I thought I'd read this because I think it has the single best joke in Poe at the end. Comes after Eridge's funeral. A footnote to the events of Eridge's funeral was supplied by Dickie Umfraville after our return to London. It was to be Believed or Not, according to Toast. Umfraville produced the imputation, if that was what it was to be called, when we were alone together. Pamela Widmerpool's name had cropped up again. Umfraville, assuming the manner he employed when about to give an imitation, moved closer. Lastly, Umfraville's character acting had come largely in person of himself, Dr. Jekyll, even without the use of the transforming drug slipping into the skin of the larger-than-life burlesque figure of Mr. Hyde. <laughs> in these metamorphoses, Umphreville's normal conversation would suddenly take grotesque shape. The bright, bloodshot eyes, neat moustache, perfectly brushed hair, the formalised army officer of caricature suddenly twisted into some alarming or grotesque shape as a vehicle for Im- improvisation. Remember my confessing in my outspoken way? I'd been pretty close to Flavia Stringham in the old days of the Happy Valley. You put it more bluntly than that, Dickie, you said you'd taken her virginity. (laughs) What a (laughs) cad I am! One sometimes wonders. Whether you're a cad, Dickie, or whether you were the first, our little romance was scarcely over before she married, Cosmo Flitton. Now, the only reason... Woman like Flavia could want to marry Cosme was because she needed a husband in a hurry and at any price. Unfortunately, my <laughs> <by laughs> own circumstances, <it> were inspiring <laughs> to her hand. Dickie, this is pure fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> Montreville looked sad. Even though she's the most boisterous, there was a touch of melancholy about him, that he was a pure Burton type when one came to think of it. Melancholy, as expressed by giving imitations, would have made another interesting subsection in The Anatomy. All right, old boy, all right, keep your whip up. Cosmo (laughs) dropped a hint once in his cups. Not a positive one. There was nothing positive about Cosmo Flittern, barring, of course, his Wasserman test. Mind you, it could be argued Flavia found an equally god-awful heel in Harrison F. Wisebite, but Harrison came onto the scene too late to have fathered the beautiful Pamela. (laughs) I'm not prepared to accept this, Dickie. You've just thought it up. Dumfreville's habit of taking liberties with dates, if a story could thereby be improved, was notorious. You can never tell, he repeated. My God, Cosmo was a swine, a real swine. Harrison and I liked in this way. He mixed a refreshing cocktail of his own invention called Death Comes for the Archbishop. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, the regular backlisted listeners will recall we did an episode on Willa Cather earlier this year. <laughs> Not about Death Comes for the Archbishop, <laughs> but nevertheless, that's very pleasing. You mentioned in that extract, or it's mentioned in that extract, uh, The Anatomy of Melancholy by Robert Burton, which plays an increasingly big part in uh, the dance as it goes on. I just wanted to share this little piece, that, um, this very short thing that... Um, Paul wrote for the Radio Times. Imagine this appearing in the Radio Times now. but In the Radio Times in 1977, um, about how he discovered the anatomy of melancholy. He said, When I was a young man working in a publisher's office, I shared with the manager a room surrounded by bookshelves that were closely packed with file copies of the books the firm had brought out since its foundation at the turn of the century. This would be Duckworth's, right? In the rare moments when all production was in the pipeline, There were no more manuscripts to report on, no ads to be made up, no authors dropping in to inquire about their sales. I used to read the less uninviting of these file copies. Sometimes, to tell the truth, I used to read them in preference to business activities. One of the firm's rather uncharacteristic publications of the early 1900s was a three-volume edition of Robert Burton's The Anatomy of Melancholy, a much-reprinted classic, first issued in 1621. On an idle afternoon, I took the first volume down, in due course, getting through the whole of The Anatomy, a longish work, in that way. There are perhaps worse places to read about melancholy than a publisher's office. (laughs) (laughs) I love it.
1: He's very very good. He's very good on publishers. I wonder. Well, I was going
2: to say, he's very good on publishers. He's very good on melancholy. You know, Jenkins is quite a. I don't know what we think the difference is between. Jenkins as a narrator, and Pole, But I think there is a difference, isn't there?
4: When you were discussing Jenkins just now, you, you left out his tone of voice, which is the tone of voice of the, of the 12 volumes of A Dance to the Music of Time. And I think that is crucially important. I mean, if you try, as indeed I did, I read a whole book about it, summarizing these books, and therefore leaving out the tone of voice, almost meaningless. I mean, it, it, you look at the summary, my retrospective summaries, because I don't think, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure he didn't make any outline of a novel before he wrote it. It grew, as it were, organically. They grew, and it grew, the, series, the sequence too. But I, afterwards, summarized the thing at his request, I may say. It was the most horrible job I've ever had <laughs> in all my life. <laughs> I felt as if I were taking, you know, the car engine of a particularly beautiful and sleek and fast and elegant car to pieces. And there I stood with all these bloody pieces on the garage floor, and absolutely no idea how to put them together. That's what I did in what is you've got the book somewhere, haven't yeah. you? But that's what it is. It consists of the pieces. It's been taken to pieces and put put on the garage floor. It has been a useful volume, I know, to lots of people, and it was very useful for me in writing his biography, certainly. That saved me a lot of trouble. But it was a horrible job, and I hated it. And what was absolutely missing, and that you cannot deal with in any um, compendium like that, is the tone of voice, which is so crucial. It's a sort of I remember the first time I went to a Picasso show, very, very young, and it was a huge show at the Tate, and it was the moment at which the British public got the hang of Picasso. Before that, there was always jokes about two eyes on one side of the nose and all the rest of it. Uh, I mean, he was, you know, he was just jeered at. And when you went in to the exhibition, you just heard a low chuckle, a low sort of hum. I didn't know what it was, at first. It was the hum of laughter. As people were looking at these pictures, and Sally got, ah! And they just laughed. I mean, it wasn't loud laughter. It was a low humming laughter. And I think that is very much the equivalent of the tone of voice in Pearl. I don't want to say he's just a comic author. I mean, of course there is that. I think he's one of the... uh, Well, he's a very deep and dark author, actually. Hmm. But the process of uh, when you jump into the water, it is very, very welcoming because of this humming laughter underlining...
3: Everything. There is an answer, of course, to the question of how does the, vo- the voice of Jenkins differ from the voice of Powell. And we actually know perfectly well, because after he finished Dance the Music of Time, Pohl wrote four volumes of memoirs, and I, which I utterly recommend. I think it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful set of memoirs. And it it's got some things in common, but... There is a sort of um, increased intimacy about uh, domestic events in the, the memoirs. In The, in the Dance of Music of Time, it's, it's pretty clear that we're going to be shut off from quite a lot of private things. There's a sentence when he just announces that around the same time, I got married to... Um, to mm. I, got ma- I, I got married. And we don't really,
2: we're not really admitted
3: to those kind of joys. That's another area where he really doesn't overlap with Proust. He,
2: he doesn't, We never learn the titles of any of Nick it's, Jenkins no, novels. It's a glorious sentence. In, and
3: mm. I, 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 I'd laugh every time I come to this. And he just says, I was then at the time of, of life when one has published a couple of novels. <laughs> <laughs>
2: It's so grand. So so we're just going to hear a list of the people who have chosen A Dance to the Music of Time as their Desert Island book on Desert Island Discs. But let's hear from the first of them. Well, uh, I wish I had more time for readings. I like reading, and I'm always appalled by my own ignorance when I read about sort of English literature. If I've won the football pools, I should like to spend the rest of my life just reading, I think.
4: Um, Dance to the Music of Time would uh, do very nicely because it's so long, uh, my memory is so poor that by the time I got to the end of it, I could start again at the beginning, and it would be as a new book to me.
2: (laughs) Well, it's taken us 82 episodes, but I finally got the voice of John Peel into into this podcast. Hooray! Uh, so here's, here are some of the other people who've chosen A Dance to the Music of Time. It's been chosen by Jillie Cooper on, only on her first visit to the island. On her second visit, she chose an Atlas. <laughs> uh, it was chosen by Joanna Lumley. Uh, it was chosen by Ian Rankin, novelist Ian Rankin. And I regret to inform you, it was chosen by Tim Martin founder of the Weatherspoon chain of pubs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but he in particular said, a bit like Peel did there, that, you know, it's nice and long and I'll be on the desert island. And, you know, we, we, there's a reason why I didn't ask Tim Martin to be the guest on this <laughs> <laughs> um, And does anybody know the connection between Anthony Pohl and The Who? <laughs> no one! Wow, that's amazing. No, do you know? I think that's yes, I know. I heard is. you. <laughs> Kit Lambert, the Who's co-manager, oh, of course, of was this. You didn't get that. I, I knew know. it,
4: but I didn't
5: yeah, get
2: it. The, the son of Con- yes. Pearl's best friend, Constant Lambert,
1: who is pretty much Morland in the books. Yes, yes. In the, yeah, in the way that Extrapenal is very closely based on. I
2: Hoover. think
4: there's almost more. Well, they were both written as as memorials, as it were. I mean, that was an element. Two two friends of of ternis.
2: Well, we, um, we have a clip, the last clip we're going to hear is Paul talking about, reminiscing about constant yeah. Lambert.
5: Great. If you could take just one disc of your eight, which would it be? Well, I think I would have Lambert's um, Rio Grande, which I think would have most of the um, characteristics which I like, Chow one up. And one luxury to take with you? Well, my luxury would be a bottle of wine every day, <laughs> of red wine, and I would drink a third of it at lunchtime and two thirds at dinner. <laughs> we will arrange enough for you to, to cover the length of your soldier. That'd be very kind. I don't mind perfectly ordinary rough red wine. Well, we'll not do... too rough. Well, no, not too rough because um, uh, to recall Constance Lambert again, I remember he and I once bought a bottle of wine called Tawny Wine Port Flavor one afternoon <laughs> and It it is one of the few bottles of wine I have been unable to drink. I think there are only two others as far as I can remember.
2: (laughs) I love... Of the the two or three. (laughs) He's able to remember the two (laughs) or three.
4: I'm sure if you'd asked him,
1: he could. (laughs) He did did have that that kind of side, which is perhaps we haven't really talked about the fact that his reputation and how it's changed, but he was apparently the last person, the last member of the Travellers Club to still wear a hat at, 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 in the coffee house at lunchtime, which was uh, which, which was a kind of a tradition, that, but which I mean, he liked that kind of thing. He yes, liked. He, did. he liked. I think order and concern. I,
2: I, before we go on to talk about Pole's relevance today, we were having a slight dispute about this downstairs. I would like to point out that yes. I bought this on the way here. Look, the the new issue of World of Interiors published today has got <laughs> Pole's house, the Chantry, on the front cover. Pole's ups So he is on trend once again. <laughs> Do you feel Paul is read now? He was certainly read thirty years ago. I'm going to say this now?
4: is a bookshop. You should ask whoever runs the the, run, the people running the bookshop. Yeah. I don't. I think he's read more than he certainly was. I I first read him at Oxford when a friend of mine gave me a book of his and I gave it back and I said, well, frankly, my life is. Boring enough already, without my having to read this stuff. I suppose it was the buyer's market. And a few years later, he tried again. And that time, the penny kind of dropped. And what I mean is I think you need a shift of focus. I think Poe is, in fact, a very, very original writer. And that it's misleading, all these comparisons with Woodhouse and yeah. indeed with Bruce, or with Evelyn Waugh, for that matter. He, he is, there isn't anybody actually very like him. And so you can't read him with an ear or an eye filled with any other writer. You have to, it's a sort of, It's well, it was a readjustment. It was for me and many writers, uh, readers of Pearl, I think have find that when you finally get your eye in, and it's the same at looking at a difficult picture. You can look at pictures and you, there are certain pictures you just can't make it or sense tale of. And then suddenly one day the thing falls into place and you realize that you are looking at something and has a good deal to say to
1: you. And. Uh, and he was—I mean, he wasn't—he—he he had it. Plenty of critics. I mean, he divided people, didn't he? I mean, all and, and, his life he had critics. When um, I was young, Margaret, who'd been his great friend, t- yes. turned against him, and yeah, uh, well, I think that was jealousy. Yeah, uh, Philip Larkin get panned this book. The same uh,
4: thing. Philip Larkin wrote one novel, and it wasn't a great That's what Kingsley
1: Amis said.
3: It's, I don't think it's a panning that review. I think <laughs> it gives. I think it gives a very good flavour of it. I, I, I disagree. I don't, I don't think, think it's it was. A, a negative review. At all. He did
1: refer to him regularly as the horse-faced dwarf. Not in, <laughs> Not in print. Not in print.
3: But the. I think that to, to come back yeah. to, to this, I, th- I do think that there are some things about literary culture now which are which seem. Opposed to everything that's really good about Pohl and about what the, the novel does. I think that the, 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 what seems to be coming to the, the prominence of, of taste is very solipsistic novels about oneself. And Pohl is absolutely at the opposite end to Knausgaard, say. This isn't a book <laughs> about yeah. the self. This is a book. This is what um, Kingsley Amis called an allography, a book about other people. It's a book too that is very ready to find laughter at the most um, inappropriate ways. It's not something that um, it's not a book that that says, "Oh well, no, you know, somebody's died, so we're not going to find anything funny about that. Somebody's been sick in a vase at a funeral. <laughs> that's a dreadful thing to ha- happen." I feel that we would say, "This is a dreadful thing to happen. We must not laugh." at this point. The other thing about it, I have to say, is that um, it's a little, I do think, it's a little bit of a Tory book. I do think Mm. that the whole kind of dynamic of the book, of people becoming what they want to be, of striving forward, is not very much in the tradition of... um, (laughs) <laughs> the London Review of Books. <laughs> or Fission. Or Fission, yeah. yeah. I do think it's all about kind of independent life. And I think that, you know, I mean, I've had a, a book criticised in the press for being, um, for being right-wing, you know, and I thought immediately, is that a rule now? That we're not allowed to write, you know, conservative inclined books. I do think that it's, um, there are things about it which seem quite different to the, uh, the predominant taste of, Today, But that doesn't mean that they're not great books. I think they are great books. It's kind of us that's a little bit out of
2: tune. But taste will come back. So um, we're we're getting near the end of the podcast now. And so if you're listening at home and it's Christmas Day, even if it's not Christmas Day, if if you're listening on Boxing Day or in the dead zone um, before New Year, we're all going to the pub. Everyone in this shop is going to the museum tavern uh, just down the road from the LRB bookshop. And so it seems appropriate to... For me to share this section. This is a short paragraph about the writer X Trapnel based on Julian McLaren Ross and his attachment to pubs. Like almost all persons whose life is largely spun out in saloon bars, Bagshaw acknowledged strong ritualistic responses <laughs> to given pubs. Each drinking house possessed its special almost magical endowments to give meaning to whatever was said or done within its individual premises. Indeed Bagshaw himself was so wholeheartedly committed to the mystique of the pub (laughs) that no night of his life was complete without a final pint of beer in one of them. Accordingly, (laughs) withdrawal of Bagshaw's company, whether or not that was to be regarded as auspicious, could always be relied upon, wherever he might be, however convivial the gathering, ten minutes before closing time. If, (laughs) an unlikely contingency, the local were not already known to him, Bagshaw, when invited to dinner, always took the trouble to ascertain its exact situation for the inaction of this last rite. He must have carried in his head the names and addresses of at least 200 (laughs) London pubs. Heaven knows how many provincial ones. Each measured off in delicate gradations in relation to the others, strictly assessed for every movement in Bagshaw's tactical game. The licensed premises he chose for the production of Trapnel, and that's brilliant, (laughs) the production of Trapnel. (laughs) The licensed premises he chose for the production of Trapnel were in Great Portland Street, dingy, obscure, altogether lacking in outer character, possibly a haunt familiar for years for stealthy BBC negotiations after Bagshaw himself had, in principle, abandoned the broadcasting world. I'm sure you'll like Trapnel, he said. I feel none of the reservations about presenting him, sometimes experienced during the war, Trapnel managed to get on the wrong side of several supposedly intelligent people, and on we go. I wish I wish we had time to to to
1: give my you some my, of my, my favorite thought. my favorite Trapnel line is the one, and it's it's really important. Hillary made a point which which is crucial: is that Trappnell is very funny in this book, but ultimately. Often the, the the way the book like like musical themes, the, the the comic themes come back in as sort of tragic motifs l- later in the book. And Chapnel's story is one of those. But I just love this that Chapnel's going back to Umfraville and impersonations. Chapnel was famous for one uh, particular impersonation. It turned out in due course that Chapnel impersonations of Boris Karloff were to be taken as a signal that a late evening must be brought remorselessly to a
0: close. <laughs> Just the
1: ability to, to get one character with one, it's, it's, it's brilliant.
2: Well, we must bring the, uh, this, we uh, this evening remorselessly to a close. We've got time for a few questions. Yes, gentlemen there in the jumper. Question for Hillary: You said you'd t- uh, tell us how, how you got to know and oh, to yeah. help. Oh. And you didn't, so <laughs> would you like to... <laughs> Yeah.
4: It's a rather frightful story, really. I was um, uh, i was still in my 20s. I was working for The Spectator as its literary editor. and It had in those days a basement dining room that was put in by the proprietor for wining and dining, I suppose, members of the cabinet or whoever the front of the paper were interested in. I had it one day a week for the back, and that was just really my friends, and it was marvellous because I could ring up anyone I wanted to meet. So... Greatly daring, and I must say it cost me sleepless nights, I nerved myself and I rang Anthony Powell. It just, I was so nervous, I nearly dropped the phone. And I said to him, Mr. Powell, in that quavering voice that, young, that girls can have at that stage, I said, Mr. Powell, would he... Ivy compton Burnett, whom I also hugely admired, and she was the subject later of my very first book, had just died. So I rang him up desperately nervous. I was in my, you know, very, very young. I'd only just got the job. And I said, would you believe Ivy Compton Burnett has died and I need someone to write her obituary. And I'm ringing you to ask you. I didn't say to have the great honor of writing an obituary of Ivy Compton Burnett in the page of the Spectator, but that's what I thought. And he said, no, absolutely not. He never wrote obituaries he didn't like and hadn't read Ivy Compton Burnett. And at that point, I really lost my temper, having been so nervous. I just thought, well, who are you? I said, look, there are two writers whom I admire more, whom we people, everybody under 25 in this country admires more than anybody. It's a complete lie. was me. <laughs> I said, and they are Ivy Compton, Burnett, and you. And it's you. <laughs> absolute nonsense. If you had died, I would have rung her. <laughs>
1: That is brilliant.
4: And asked her to write your obituary. So he was very taken aback. I mean, you know, when I, when I came across Ada Lentwardine in his books, I understood how he felt about pushy literary ladies. But uh, there was a pause. And he said, well, hmm, I don't think we have a book of hers in the house. Which was absolute rubbish because his wife uh, was a great expert and indeed wrote a book herself on Ivy Captain Burnett She had all of Ivy's novels. Uh, I'll just have to go and see. And then he put the phone down. I imagine he was pretty much shattered as I was pretty much shattered <laughs> by the turn that this conversation was taking. So he, I'll go and see if we have one in the house, he said. So there was a long pause and then he came back and he picked up the phone and he'd obviously had a word with Violet who had said, look, pull yourself together, you're going to have to do this. And he said, yes, he would write the, write the um, imagery, which he did and it's a very good one. Uh, he described her... He said he'd met her at a boat race party uh, uh, just before the war, just after the war, I can't remember. But he said she was then a quite unmodified pre-First War personality. To put it quite like that, but anyway, I I, I remembered it always. Of course, they're very, very different, except that I love them both. And then the editor of The Spectator, who was Nigel Lawson, subsequently uh, Tory Chancellor, as you know. I may say I've never been more left-wing, I've been left-wing all my life, but never more so than when I worked for the (laughs) Spectator. Anyway, Nigel had this brilliant idea. The Spectator was tremendously hard-up, always on the verge of closing. And uh, his idea uh, was that we would have a Spectator Book of the Month. And he said that to me and we'll put it on the cover and we'll have a sticker and we'll say Spectator Book of the Month and all the rest of it. And I said, absolutely fine, but I'm your literary editor. I get to choose the books. So he said, all right. And uh, the first book I chose was a short story by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who had never been published in the, or translated into English, never published in this country, never translated. Mm-hmm. And I, how I knew about him, God knows. But <laughs> I got my uh, Spanish yeah, correspondent... Was it Jean Franco? Jean Franco, um, prompted. She, was, she reviewed Spanish books for me. She was, uh, she was an academic, I think, at London University and pretty good in her field. And she must have, well, did tell me about him. So I asked her to translate a couple of short stories. I said, if he's as good as you say, we'll publish one. So she translated a couple so that I had a choice. And we, the first spectator book of the month was a short story by this completely unheard of Latin American author that nobody in the book world or elsewhere knew anything about. And it was, well, it didn't have the banner headline, but it was on the front page. So the next month came round, there had to be another one. So I chose, I'd just been sent the proof copy of Books Do Furnish a Room. Sorry, not books, it was the Military Philosophers. And I chose a chapter of that. That was the second Spectator short story. I may say neither of these sold a single extra copy (laughs) of the magazine. And the third choice, Well, I looked everywhere for the book that I was going to choose and in the end I chose a second chapter of The Military Philosophers (laughs) and after that the whole idea of Books of the Month was dropped. But that (laughs) (laughs) that was the pretext on which I rang up Mr. Pearl and asked him to lunch and he came to lunch in the basement dining room of The Spectator and nervous though I was on that occasion, I invited all my friends and I can't now remember who they were except one was my husband who just prompted me about uh, Jean Franco and one was our friend Jim Farrell, JG Farrell who had was just finishing Troubles. He too oh, yes. therefore was quite unknown and a couple of others but we had a great time and that's why I think that this meeting contributed something possibly to Books to Furnish a Room because it was just the moment at which Tony was beginning to write it and I have always thought that's why he accepted my invitation. He's rung mm-hmm. up by a totally unknown girl that he's never heard of who who seems uh, frankly nervous and unimpressive and ask him this silly question and he accepted it was background material for books to furnish a Uh, room that's my view
2: your question is very likely to make it into the finished podcast thank you sir does anybody else have another question
4: um my question was about the tv adaptation of dance the music of time which i think was broadcast in the 90s i think i saw it so i must have been you know an adult and i wondered if you seen it and what you thought of it as a production Sorry, representation it was broadcast on. You mean on the radio? or it was it's on no, the TV, channel four, I think. Oh, I thought it was brilliant, but so truncated. Yeah. that Anyone who hadn't read the novels couldn't possibly have made any sense of it. They gave it. I mean, how many episodes did they give? Four. Um, four. Yes. And they gave, was it eight or twelve to Evelyn Waugh's yeah. Bride's which was one book. And this, this gives you some idea of what how high or how low Earl's reputation mm. stood, that bride, Head was eight or ten episodes, and his 12 volumes got four. Uh, the acting and the casting were impeccable, I thought, but otherwise it was, we must were, have been We were trying to it.
3: remember
2: who was, was in it, wasn't
3: it? It's Simon Russell Bill. Oh, okay. so so it was Simon board, Russell Bill. Was, yeah. with, but you know. it was quite, a, it was quite an interesting um, technical discovery for a beginning yeah. novelist, which was that if you boil a novel down beyond a certain point, then the only thing left in the novel is people greeting each other. (laughs) People (laughs) walking (laughs) into (laughs) a room saying, oh, minutes later, Oh, Whidperpool.
1: Thank
2: you very much, Philip Hensher, Hilary Sperling, Hilary's biography of... Anthony Pohl, Dancing to the Music of Time, has just come out in paperback. Uh, The tills in this shop will be open.
1: Ringing Uh, with festive cheer. Ringing with
2: festive cheer. Thank you very much, everybody listening at home, for giving us such a brilliant year on Backlisted. We have had a fantastic time. Backlisted, or as it it was once originally called, there probably won't be that much reading to do. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) on, on, On this episode number 82... That's it, isn't it? That's it. Thanks very much, everybody.
1: Thank you very much. Merry Merry Christmas. Christmas. If you prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call "locklisted," which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.